This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So a couple months ago, I was talking to another Anglican priest, and he's in a time of transition in his life, and I said, what do you really want to do? And he said, you know what I really want? You know what I really want to do? I said, what? He said, I want your job. My job. I'm thinking, well, I don't know if Dean Steve has given me permission to give it away, you know? So... And then I thought, you know, no wonder you want my job, because I got a great job. So first of all, I get to work with people like Dean Steve and Deacon Will and, and Deacon Margie and other staff here, and it's awesome. I get to work under Bishop Stewart. Uh, we have an amazing staff team, and I get to, one of the most fun parts of my job is to oversee some ministries that I think, as we're going to see in our psalm reading today, are very near and dear to the heart of God. So for instance, Two weeks ago, you heard an announcement. Heather Johnson told you about our baby bank that every other Thursday night, through a partnership with Caring Network, we have 40 to 45 women uh, and families, sometimes husbands, boyfriends, children. They come to receive supplies for their baby, for diapers and wipes and things like that, and clothing. And it's a wonderful ministry. Uh, some, possibly not all of these women, but some of them may at one time have considered aborting their unborn child. They decided to keep it. Many of them come from um, different countries of origin, so we've counted 15 different countries, Afghanistan, India, Nepal, uh, Myanmar, Sudan, Ethiopia, Burma, or um, um, Belarus, and, and all kinds of countries. So it's a beautiful ministry. Um, I didn't start it, but I get to work with it. I'm actually a volunteer there. Also, our Thrive ministry is run by an amazing team of people. And I just get to come alongside and encourage them. And Thrive is a ministry to families impacted by disabilities. They have a parents support group after the second service today. That's a wonderful ministry. We get to partner with World Relief, something that we've done for over 30 years. We love World Relief. And we love the work that they're doing with immigrants and refugees. And, and some of you are involved in ministries to, to the poor and the vulnerable, whether it's jail ministry or post-prison ministry or... Um, uh, families that have adopted children or doing foster care. So there's all kinds of these things going on. And I would say, I'm going to argue this morning, that these are things that are very near and dear to the heart of God. Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 82, because I'm just going to read a couple verses to start with. So Psalm 82 is found on page 492 in your Bibles. I prefer you turn to the real book, but if you just want to follow along, if you don't want to follow along, just listen. That's fine, too. So, um, so verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So this sermon series, which we're almost done with, has been called Prayers for Real Life. One of the things that the Psalms teach us to do, train us to do, move our hearts to do, move our lips to do, corporately and individually, is to pray for justice, to pray for God's justice, especially for the poor. So in other words, to know the God of the Bible, to know the triune God of love that's been known the, the, through Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, to know this God, to draw near to this God, to say that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to love him, to adore him, is to come near to the fire of his heart of justice especially for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. It will change us. So when we gather to worship, it changes us into people who love justice because he loves justice, as the Psalms say. So how does that happen in our life? How does that God bring about that transformation? Well, 
as the great African-American preacher Gardner Taylor said, who I like to quote, I hope you don't get tired of me quoting him, let's take a stroll through the neighborhood of the text, the biblical text. And I thought about having a, a nice, neat outline, but instead I'm just going to walk through it verse by verse, and let's look at what this means. But first, let me just say this. When we talk about justice, what do I mean by that? Because in our culture today, there are competing and sometimes warring visions of what justice is. What is the end of justice? What is the source of justice? What does justice look like? And some these different views sometimes overlap, but there's a profound differences. So, to riff off a short story writer, what do we talk about when we talk about justice? What are we talking about? And I came out of the first service, and I grabbed, I, I like to talk to really smart people about my sermon and get feedback. And so this really smart person, Dr. My, Brian McGraw, I said, hey, what did you think about my sermon? What was missing? He said, well, you never defined justice. You never told us what it is. So I said, well, and Dean Steve said the same thing. He's also a really smart person. So like, give me a definition. He said, well, try this. So here's the overarching definition. Justice is really shalom. It's the biblical word for peace, which means right ordering of relationships. Relationships are rightly ordered, the way they were created to be, the way they were meant to be. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, they are rightly ordered relationships. And it's all about, we know now that those relationships are broken, they're torn, they're frayed. And so biblical justice is about not just blaming people who are doing it wrong, but it's about repairing those broken relationships, mending those torn relationships. And so we're going to see in this psalm, under that broader definition of justice, of shalom, we're going to see specific examples, concrete examples of what that justice looks like. So let's start with verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, who are these gods? Are they really gods? Are they little gods? Well, not really, but here's, here's probably the best guess. So some, Bible, some smart Bible people say that they're human rulers, like politicians, leaders, powerful people. Some smart Bible people say that they are spiritual powers. As St. Paul says in Ephesians 6, they're the powers of evil, they're principalities and powers. They're fallen angels, but spiritual beings. I think, well, that sounds pretty smart. That sounds pretty smart. So I say it's probably both of them. So they're both pretty smart, and I think they're both right. I think these are human rulers, non-human spiritual powers who have been given, delegated by God. God has delegated them authority. God has delegated them leadership. God has given them rulership over certain areas, or he has allowed them to rule certain areas. He has allowed these spiritual beings to rule to exercise authority. Why he has done that is beyond the point of this sermon, but it's a good question. But verse 1, here's what we find, that God, the God of all the gods, quote marks, has now taken his place in the divine council. God is standing up as God to do what only God can do. So here, the judge, with a capital J, is going to judge the judges. The ruler, with a capital R, is going to rule the rulers. The God of authority is going to exercise authority over the authorities. That's what's happening in verse 1. He takes his place. He's in charge. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly? So there's this kind of, kind of in this short little psalm, there's kind of some quirky interpretive things, questions you got to ask. And 
Those really matter because it depends on how you interpret a Bible passage. So we want to treat the text with care. We don't want to just say, it just says whatever I think it says or whatever I want it to say. No, it's like, I want to use the best tools I have, read it in history with the church, and, and what, what is the best interpretation of this? So the, the, another question to ask is, who's talking starting in verse 2? Is it God? Is he talking? Or is it some prophet, and it's, this is some kind of prophetic oracle? Again, I, I would say it could be either one, and it doesn't really matter because the point is, if, even if it's a prophetic oracle, it's coming from God. So these are words from God, and the words are, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, we've seen that phrase in the Psalms, how long, in Psalms of lament, in which people cry out to God, how long is this going to go on? Well, here... Um, God is crying out, how long is this going to go on? It's, it's a statement of protest. It's a statement of outrage. It's a statement of, we're going to just about done here. I've had it up to here. This is going to be over. How long? And God is asking us to join this protest against these gods who have gone corrupt. So here's the charge. What have they done wrong? In verse 2, they've done two things. They judge unjustly, and especially they show partiality to the wicked. And then we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, that plays out in mistreatment of the poor and the vulnerable. Now, we find this theme throughout the Bible, really early in the Bible. In Exodus, in Leviticus 19.15, God tells human judges, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Don't treat people differently because of the color of their skin or their social status or how much money they have. Now, we hear that and we go, well, of course. Like, of course that's how you treat people. And there's no of course in it at all. This idea was unique and revolutionary in the ancient world. Historian Tom Holland puts it this way. Apart from the Jewish people, ancient cultures lacked any sense that the poor or weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Let me say that last part again. They lacked any sense that the poor or weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. There were smatterings of this idea in ancient cultures, but not anything near as clear and emphatic as this. So the charge is God to these judges, and rulers, politicians, leaders, people in power, you haven't done your job. Like, I gave you a job to do, and it was pretty clear. Top of the job description, make sure you treat the poor and the vulnerable well. Look out for them, because they're going to need you. And they didn't do that. Instead, you show partiality to the wicked. You kowtow to powerful people. You hobnob with the wealthy. You find it useful. You find it gainful. You find it beneficial because these people are impressive and they're glitzy and they have lots of money. And God says, I find it nauseating and I find it outrageous. And as we're going to see, I'm going to take you down. That comes later. So what should they be doing? And again, I want you to feel the emotion in this text. This is not just theologizing. This is emotion. There's emotion here. There's force here. What should you be doing? Verses 3 and 4. 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. There's four groups, four categories of what we might call vulnerable people in this, in this passage. Uh, there, and I, I think if you didn't get them, let me just repeat them. The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute. Exodus, right after the Ten Commandments, adds a couple more categories of people. Widows and foreigners. Uh, the ger is the Hebrew word. People that were displaced by war or terror or violence, on the move, uprooted. The, one of the most important words for the Bible in the Bible for uh, well, poor is the actual word for, that's translated afflicted in verse 3, which literally is the word, the anawin is the Hebrew word. It's an important word. It occurs 30 times in the Psalms. It refers to people who have been knocked down. They can't get up by themselves. But despite the fact that they're knocked down, they still trust in the Lord, and they still cry out to the Lord, and they seek the Lord as their refuge. Those are the anawin. And notice the verbs that it tells us what to do in verses 3 and 4. Four, four actions for these four groups of people. Give justice, verse 3, maintain their rights, rescue them, and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So sometimes we talk about, is there something like corporate injustice? Well, if you define that really carefully as there are forces beyond people's control that sometimes keep them in the grip of evil and injustice, yes. The Bible clearly teaches that. Like, look at the end of verse 4. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The wicked have them. And they won't let go. So somebody needs to strike the hand of the wicked or something to release the poor and the vulnerable from the hand of the wicked. This is the work of advocacy. That's what we would call it. It's not only having compassion, but it's working to advocate on behalf of those who are poor and vulnerable. Let me give you an aside because this is, this is really important, especially in our political climate. So there is a, and I'm going to tell you something that I think we, we being the church, are doing probably way better than everybody thinks we are, including probably most of you, including me, until I read these stats. So there is this idea that pro-life people, here, here's how it goes, right? Pro-life people only care about the fetus. And once that fetus becomes a child, they don't care. Don't care about any policies. So I read this study, and we will, I'll have this on the website this week, so you can go a blog post with all this stuff on it. So there's a researcher named Ryan Burge who dug deep into that statement to see if that's really true. And here's what he found. So people that favor a total ban on abortion, Republicans and Democrats, lump them together. They favor a total ban on abortion. Listen to this. Like, okay, these are the policies that they're in favor of. And I'm not advocating that you have to, if you want to be pro-life, you have to be for all of these things, okay? That's not my point. I'll, I'll get to the point when I get done. So 67% of people that favor a total ban of, on abortion are in favor of debt-free college. 70-70% want paid maternity leave. 67% of people that want a total ban of abortion are in favor of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. A majority of these people support the DREAM Act. 
A majority of them uh, support raising taxes on the wealthy. Now again, I don't care if you like these policies or not. I don't care if I like these policies or not. But here's his point, and I quote, the idea that there's millions of Americans who want a woman to have a baby and then don't support the government making it easier to raise that child finds no support in this data that he's called together. I'll send you the article if you want it. Again, or not again, but for, I'm saying this for the first time, doesn't mean that we can't do better. Doesn't mean that we can't grow. It doesn't mean that we still have work to do. But sometimes I can be pretty critical of the church. Maybe you can too. But we're doing way better than most people are giving us credit for, and that's as it should be. It should be that way. So here's one of the clear distinctions about the biblical vision for justice. God is the source of it. That's really important. And without God as the source, we wouldn't know, even have a vision for justice at all. Our, or our Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And as someone has said, there's only one thing that's self-evident about that, and that is that human rights are not self-evident. I mean, you look at most cultures throughout most of history, most cultures, well, all in some way or another, have oppressed people, enslaved people, terrorized people, warred against people. History is replete with examples of this. We need a source of justice that is objective, external, and unchanging. So Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice, O Lord, are at the foundation of your throne. That's where it comes from. Verse 5. So where does it lead if we don't practice justice, if we don't advocate for the poor and the vulnerable? Verse 5. They, they and the they... Again, this is one of those interpretive questions. Is they referring to the poor in verses 3 and 4, or is it re referring to the corrupt leaders in verses 1 and 2? Probably the corrupt leaders in verses 1 and 2. It says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So when God's agents, God's appointed delegates who have authority to do so, when they don't speak up for the voiceless, as Proverbs 31 says, when they allow the powerful to crush the weak, look, look how bad this is. Look how much is at stake. The very existence of the world is at stake. If, if this gets all messed up, the stakes are really high. That's how important it is to God. Verse 6 and 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words... It's saying, I had this exalted notion of your importance. You were so impressive. You were so powerful. But now, whether it's human leaders, human rulers, or these principalities and powers, I see how flawed you are. I see how tragically, really weak and pathetic you are, and that you're actually going down like any son or daughter of Eve. We started this sermon series with Psalm 2, um, where... I said, I used the Johnny Cash song, God is going to cut you down, which is the message of Psalm 2, and which is also kind of the message of Psalm 82. And verse 9 says, you, talking about the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And I said, it's like God takes these corrupt um, leaders, rulers, politicians, whatever, and drops them on a rock. But a friend of mine pointed out, no, he actually dashes them. So 
This is how seriously God takes this. Okay, so I'm not a historian, but I've read enough history to know that the theme of the powerful crushing the powerless, the strong mistreating the weak, is such a common theme in history. The more history you read, if you don't know the Lord, you will get so depressed. Seriously. You know what happened? So November 9th and 10th, Thursday and Friday, was the 85th anniversary of Crystal Nacht, Night of the Broken Glass, in Germany in 1938, when Nazi stormtroopers under Hitler's direction and authority started smashing Jewish shops, terrorizing Jewish communities, arresting people, and sending people to concentration camps where over the next seven years, 6.2 million Jews would be murdered in gas ovens. You think, well, we're all over that, right? So the FBI, our FBI, two weeks ago, came out with a statement saying that incidents of anti-Semitism in our country are at a historic high. And if you read church history, you see, much to our grief, how often the church has been complicit in anti-Semitism. You see, I want us to get over this temptation to say, yeah, those people are really bad. Those people are really unjust. Those people are really corrupt. Those people don't do it right. But Psalm 130, verse 3 says, Lord, if you would count iniquities, who could stand? And even our Lord Jesus said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. I want us to feel the weight of this. And I want us to feel, I want to feel my limitations, my powerlessness, my sinfulness, that even when I'm pursuing justice, I can be perpetrating injustice because of the sinful bent of my heart. It's another profound difference in the biblical view of justice. We're all implicated. We're all part of this mess. But notice Psalm 82, it doesn't end on a bummer. It doesn't end in despair. It doesn't, it's not even sad. It ends with a cry of hope. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's almost like God is saying, I know how depressing it is. So I'm going to give you words that you can use to use on me. And then I will act on your behalf. God is telling us, I'm the author of a ju justice. I'm the author of justice. I care way more about it than you do or ever will. I care way more about defending the weak and vulnerable than, than any of you, all of you all combined. So cry out to me. So in verse 8, we're invited to come before God and say, we need you to set things right. We long for the fatherless to be cared for. 
We long for persons with disabilities to be treated as truly indispensable to our body. We long for the most vulnerable refugees to find refuge in you. We long for the unborn mothers and fathers to be cared for. We long for our Jewish friends who are victims of anti-Semitism to find consolation in Yeshua, Jesus. We long for the end of war and violence and terror towards civilians. But we're not up to this task. So Lord, you arise. You see what this does in your soul when you kind of work through this psalm, you know, and you get to the end at verse 8 with this confident, you shall inherit all the nations. Talk about shalom, the repairing of all that is broken. This, that little half of a verse, that's what that's saying. All the, the leaves of the tree by the water, the river of life and revelation will be for the healing of the nations. The repairing of the nations in and under King Jesus, Messiah. You see what this does? It releases you to find your place in God's economy of justice, your role, because ultimately the world is not yours to save. I mean, I can't even save one person. I can't even save myself. I can't save the world. It's not mine to save. And yet, as Deacon John Clark told me this week when I asked another really smart guy about this, he said, biblical justice is prayerful, hopeful, faithful, willing to lament, but waiting and working for earth to reflect heaven as we pray every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. So we go before the Savior, the true and only Savior, the true and only Messiah, and we say, Lord, what is my small role in this ocean of needs? What are you calling me? What are you calling my family to do? And then, triune God of love, I will watch and wait for you. I will draw close to you and kindle my heart with your heart of compassion. As the early church loved to pray, Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. That's the prayer of everybody that longs for justice. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.